0: Mental health is my wealth, the stress up on the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seeking ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody
1: in the house know what I'm talking about. The Big Silence.
0: The Big Silence. What's up? Welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am so excited to be here. We are in what like week? Two, three of 2023. And I, how many? The middle. We're in the middle of January 2023. There are so many cool things happening at the Big Silence that we've already been working on. We started on this programming in 2022 and focusing on our youth and our youth programs. So I just want to say make sure that you sign up at thebigsilence.com to our newsletter. To stay informed, especially if you're in Austin and you have youth that want to, youth, that's such a weird word, kids, fam, you know, that want to be involved. We're doing movement and mindfulness, and these programs that we're coming out with this year are going to change your life. It's all based on how, what I, what did Karina Dawn want at 10 years old to 20 years old? What would have Saved me from a situational depression, from a suicide attempt, to make those years easier, and that is our goal with the foundation. So, let me just dive into Dr. Elisa Howlerman, author of Sobriety. I love this because I was talking to Elisa before the podcast and after, and during, and we have so many similarities of growing up same generation and everything that happened with us and that's what like connecting those dots when I was in that decade of like really changing and developing years thinking I was alone and then I meet so many through the podcast that I'm like "Well, shit you had the same story or similar not we all have different stories but very similar if only we would have talked to our best friend to our acquaintances and opened up that conversation when we were young. And maybe then we wouldn't have struggled so much and felt so alone. I love this conversation with Dr. Howlerman. Again, share it. I'm sure there's someone in your life who needs to open up the conversation because as you know, one conversation can change a life. All right, and welcome to the Big Silence Podcast, Dr. Elisa Hallerman.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited about this conversation because in learning about you, I feel like there's so many similarities in Mm -hmm. our lives, which also means that there's so many similarities in other people's lives. And I just want to like get in there and start out with what is sobriety
1: mm, great question So the word sobriety is something that that I came up with and then trademarked as a modality that I work with but taking it back a little bit of how I got to it was I was working on my dissertation in grad school and you know in my own sort of sober journey I had had, Long time in sobriety at this point, over a decade, but was still sort of suffering from that. What's going on in here? You know, and why am I not, quote unquote, happy? Why am I lacking meaning and purpose all of a sudden at this point in my life when everything on the outside seems to be so successful? And I recognized that I needed to do more of that internal work, which always sort of escaped me of what that is and how to access it. So now I'm in school and I'm studying what's called depth psychology, and that's D-E-P-T-H. And depth psychology is a tradition that's oriented around the belief in the unconscious. And so it is non-pathologizing, but rather strength affirming when it comes to an approach to suffering, that we're always looking for what lies underneath which made sense to me for well, what lied under the symptoms of addiction and this need to want to do something external in order to make myself feel better on the inside. Anyway, the question I asked myself in the dissertation and asked my participants was could doing soul-centered work, delving into the unconscious, could that help with long-term recovery from addiction? And the answer from all the participants was a resounding yes. But the caveat was that they didn't know they were doing it. They didn't know they were doing soul-centered work. They didn't know that they were delving into the unconscious. And the reason was because we don't have language around soul work anymore. And it's nothing new, you know, doing this kind of soul work, looking at soul loss, connecting to our inner guidance, but we didn't have language for it. And so that's where the concept of sobriety came from, which essentially is taking our soul into account. And soul being, I describe it, and it's one of those personal definitions that you have to figure out for yourself. But I describe soul as really the essence of who we are and your unique way of being in this world. And essentially it is the meaning making machine inside each of us. And it has a very felt sense to it. So, you know, when you're connected, you feel for me, I feel a sense of home. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be at that moment. I feel a sense of peace. And the requirements, if you will, for doing the work in sobriety is that you're willing to remain curious about what lies underneath. You're willing to, as I call it in the book, grow down, which is essentially going deeper and deeper into the depths and learning and making what's unconscious conscious and that You're willing to learn not to be afraid of the dark, Mm. meaning that we're going to be able to sit in the dark nights and cultivate wisdom from our pain and suffering in order to transform ourselves and then give back to others. You are speaking my language. I had a
0: feeling. (laughs) 100%. So before we start talking about recovery management agency, I want to go back before you were, I mean, you were an agent at the biggest agency, but before that, going way back into, Mm -hmm. I'm always loving to hear and discuss people's childhood and why they came to a certain place. So you had many years of, drugs and alcoholism, and then you had your aha moment. But do Mm -hmm. you think there was something that led you to that? Was there something you were escaping? I have not read your book yet, but I'm going to, Sobriety.
1: Yeah, you need to call me back when you read it, girl. Yeah,
0: I know. (laughs) Well, let's share for someone listening
1: here. Yeah, so meaning like what sort of the addiction grew from? Is that essentially what you're asking So, you know, it's interesting. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to set out to be a drug addict or an alcoholic, right? It's something that happens over a period of time and it's subtle. And while a lot of people will experiment with drugs or drink alcohol or so on or have behavioral addictions, it doesn't necessarily become a problem, And it only becomes a problem after chronic use or if there's underlying issues that have already been there. Maybe we have a predisposition, which I did, to having the disease of addiction. Doesn't mean you're going to quote unquote get it, but it doesn't mean that you have a 50% more chance of having an addictive person, an addictive gene. Then there's also, well, what are your set of circumstances? You know, what is the environment that you're brought up in? What maybe do you have as far as underlying trauma? And trauma is one of those words that is a little word that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. So let's just clarify for our conversation. Trauma can be something that is acute, which is a one-time event, a car accident, a death, An assault, something that we tend to think of when we think about something traumatic happen. But trauma can also be chronic. So you can live in the most loving family that is doing the best they can. But there might be some sort of attunement, right? And to the attachment. If your parents are Incapable of showing up in a consistent way, answering questions, being there in a way that you always feel safe. And I don't mean just physically, but just emotionally. And sometimes because of their own underlying trauma or their own addictions or their own lack of parenting, they're not necessarily equipped or you're going to school and there's bullying going on or something that's happening consistently that would be something that's more chronic and you can't necessarily escape it but every time something happens it's sort of as I talk about in the book puts this little post-it note on your soul that says i'm not good enough i'm unlovable you know there's something wrong with me and these patterns and this narrative is something that we get stuck in as we get older. And so if we've had this sort of relational trauma, if you will, it makes it hard to have relationships that are healthy in the future. And so for me, I think it was a little bit of, I had this really loving house. My parents were doing the best they could with what they had and what they knew. But there was a period of time when my mom was suffering from her own addiction and my dad wasn't as present. And it really affected me in a big way. And I talk about that a lot in the book and seeing my mom suffer from her own addiction and us not knowing what that was, Mm -hmm. but rather putting her in a psychiatric ward and feeling like, oh, she might be there. She's just quote unquote crazy. And so not understanding what that was and then living in fear of like, well, something's inherently wrong with me then. Mm -hmm. And then for me, I didn't start drinking until I was 17. And But right from the beginning, it was, I hate the taste of this, but I love the way this makes me feel. And I'm looking to get drunk every single time I have a a drink. There's no sipping. There's no enjoying it. It's all about feeling better than I felt before I put it in my mouth, feeling prettier and funnier and able to socialize more and just have less inhibition in general and so that was my drinking pattern from day one yeah it wasn't and yeah
0: yeah I think most teenagers when you start drinking that is it for me it was at a very Mm -hmm. young age it was it's escapism it's getting away and then like feeling insecure and I'm not good same thing I'm not good enough and this but when I have a drink as a teenager, then I am like the life of the party. Everyone loves me, but mm-hmm. it it is not the cure-all, obviously. So then as you were, how did that progress? So you started drinking and then moved to drugs? and
1: So eventually I finished college and I finished law school and I was working and i would managed to achieve these things even with my drinking. And then I ended up moving to California. And what happened for me after that was I was introduced to harder drugs and cocaine became um, the love of my life. And I was very much cocaine, champagne kind of girl. And I ended up really becoming addicted in a terrible way. And that's what took me down quicker. For me, I'd experienced when I got to California, the loss of one of my close friends to suicide. And it was extremely traumatic without, that goes without saying. And I didn't get the proper help. So I started having all of these symptoms Uh, anxiety and OCD-like behavior and panic attacks. And I didn't understand where this was coming from. So I just, and I didn't get any help. So instead of feeling this way, it seems like the quick and easy fix was just to keep anesthetizing that with drugs and alcohol. But as we know, Drugs and alcohol or anything that we reach for externally has an expiration date on it. And it does not enable us to have long-term feeling better. It's really a short period of time. And then the very thing that was our medicine becomes our poison.
0: Yeah. So you moved to California, which LA. Mm -hmm. I feel like we were in the same nightclubs during the same time, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. We're
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> Talk
0: about that later. <laughs> so, okay. So you move there and you have graduated college and you are going into creating your career, your dream career at some of the biggest talent agencies. And I would suspect kind of going through the champagne and cocaine and all of that stuff and living that lifestyle. What was it? Can you describe that period and then what the shift was in your mind?
1: Mm -hmm. So the drug use was really early on in my career in Hollywood. So I didn't have any success until I got sober. So I just want to point that out. I was not functioning and dealing with this big job. So I was I was a young assistant and a young agent in Hollywood. And what had happened was, is what went from what felt like, oh, just partying and normal behavior and acceptable or socially acceptable, or so I thought, became really isolating and a one-woman show and really dark. And my life was as small as looking through a straw. It was really narrow where I started pushing away all my friends. I started pushing away my family and my dealer was my closest friend. And I was going to sleep at night thinking, well, if I don't wake up, so be it. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was I knew I was in trouble. I knew that I was not okay. But again, didn't understand addiction, didn't know what it was, didn't know what was wrong with me. And so I was terrified that maybe what was wrong with me was what had happened to my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really do anything about it. And then what happened was, is that something happened, so another traumatic event happened. And I was pushed right back into the PTSD from the many years before. And I just knew without doubt that if I didn't get help at that moment, that I was going to die. And my nephew was six months old at the time, and I'm extremely close with my sister. And and he was there when I was having my sort of nervous breakdown. And I just had this moment, this really soul... Centered moment where this little six month old, wise old soul looked at me, and I was thinking, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. This is never gonna, this is never going to get better. I'm incapable of getting better. This is my lot in life. And then I just heard this really loud voice that said, No, you are not allowed to get worse. You're only allowed to get better. You need to show up for him. I
0: I love that. And I think it's so important because I, in my story, in my book too, I speak about that moment of like, you. this is not meant to be you. This is not the life that you are meant to live. And you have to make this change. And to be able to hear that voice Mm -hmm. and actually listen to it and then Mm -hmm. put it into motion, into action. Like, how do you do that for someone listening like, How do you hear that and then make it an action?
1: Yeah. Looking back at that 32-year-old girl, I could cry just thinking about the the courage, right, that she had to call her therapist and say, what do I do? Where do I go? I'm amazed, especially because I'm dealing with this all day long in my job now, but I talk about the soul journey and the sort of 12 steps of the soul journey in the book. And step one is that we're all living this ordinary life, whatever that is. And we're just sort of going through the motions and going about our day. But throughout the day, there are these moments when we do hear these whispers. We all hear them. They're the big questions of, am I happy? Do I like this job? Am I in love with this person? Is this it? What am I doing right? But there's such big questions that we shush them and we just push them out away. And what happens is until is that those whispers will become louder and louder and louder and louder until a brick house falls on your head and forces you to like be still. And I think that I had heard the whispers of what are you doing? This isn't a life. You're smart. You're a lawyer. You have all these things. Like what, you know, you can you can do. And why are you alone in a hotel room doing drugs for three days? Like what mm-hmm. is wrong? So I was hearing whispers throughout. That was a day that it was particularly loud. And I felt like I had no choice. And I think that's common. And then what needs to happen in the very next moment, essentially what ends up happening is these guides will appear for you once you've sort of acknowledged that voice. And then you can see in someone else or a book or something where you go, oh, that person did it, or this person did that. And you can hold on to there's possibility and work your way through the next. Parts of the soul journey. And I think for me, when I made that, I need help moment, someone took me right away to um, a 12 step meeting. And I was the kind of academic nerd that got the big book and went home and read it, which I know most people don't do, (laughs) but I did. And I was very much like, oh my God, this is what I have? Like, okay, sign me up. Like, where do I, who do do I contact to be involved? Like, I want this. It was like someone had given me the answers to the test. Right.
0: So then you go through 12-stop and you're still working at the agency, yeah? And Yes. Yes. And then you wake up and you're five years sober. And yeah. you're like this is not right. I'm not happy. Yes,
1: yeah. so, that was just
0: like I think it's such an interesting conversation because a lot of people who are addicts are like, oh, I just need to stop drinking. I just need to stop doing the drugs. I just need to stop this, and then I'll be happy. So that's so interesting because I think a lot of times there are people even who ride into the the big silence like, I'm an addict. I need to get through this. I need to go to twelve step. I need, mm-hmm. then I will be happy. Hmm. So it goes back to finding your soul's purpose. Yeah, and mm-hmm.
1: exactly. Yeah, I mean, so I got sober in two thousand two, and in two thousand four, I started to gain some success from being an agent. My clients, were becoming more successful, therefore I was, and so on. And I was having this upward trajectory, and. I thought that, yes, I'd put down the drugs and the alcohol, and that was no longer part of my story. But instead, I had put all of my energy into work, and I was really focused on making other people's dreams come true. And I was... The more success I was having the more ego became the mask that I was wearing of Lisa Hallerman, the talent agent. And having all of these external things that I thought, if I just get there, if I just get this, then I'll be happy because isn't that what we're striving for? And then you get those things and then some, and you're still left with, oh, but I didn't heal any of the pain That was inside. And that's what happened. I woke up five years sober on my birthday and we go and we tend to get cakes and have anniversaries or birthdays for a sobriety date a year at a time. And, you know, I was thinking about what I was going to say and what I was grateful for and just sort of felt a little bit like a fraud because While I was enormously grateful for my sobriety, and that was the stepping stone and the foundation that I needed, it still felt like, oh, I have a lot of work to do. And that drove me to be curious about what else was out there. And that's when I started diving into learning more about drug and alcohol and neuroscience and what addiction was and I started to hear words like trauma and I just started to pull the threads on things that were interesting to me and expand my world a little bit and started to look at well what lied underneath you know and yeah that's what led me
0: can you explain cuz a lot of people I feel like they don't even know that they're holding trauma in their body Mm-hmm. They hear the word, but can you explain how your body hold your body and your mind holds on to trauma?
1: Mm-hmm. So what happens is when something outside of what we say our window of tolerance happens that is unexpected or something that's never happened before. It's too much information at that moment for us to process. Mm. People often talk about they were in a car accident and it became slow motion. It feels like everything slows down because your brain is trying to understand something that it's never seen before. Because what happens is we lay down patterns for things that that happen. This is how our brain remembers things and we instinctively, right? We know when you first drive a car, for instance, you get in the car and you're like, all right, I got to turn on the engine. I got to check the rear view mirror. I got to put my hands here. you're like every step of the way you're like doing it. And you're really because it's the first couple of times that you're driving. And then after a while, you don't even think about how to drive. You get in the car, you're on the phone, you're eating a sandwich, you're thinking about whatever. you all of a sudden you get to where you're going and you've never even thought about the driving. And that's because your brain has laid down a pattern of doing something over and over again. When something traumatic happens, it lays down a pattern in your brain that says, this equals danger. Okay. But most of the time, it's not necessarily danger in the sense of like, oh, you're going to get eaten by a lion. But essentially, that's what it feels like. And trauma gets held. On a cellular level in your body, because the energy of wanting to fight back or to flee a situation, if that can't happen, then all of that energy gets laid down in that sort of pattern, if you will, and gets held on to. So you want to so when something else happens that seems remotely similar, that your senses is, whether it's something you hear or something you smell or something you see or something that touches you, feels remotely similar to that pattern of that trauma that got laid down, your body will react in the present time as if that same thing is happening. And so we get triggered unconsciously by things that seem essentially out of our control. So people who are suffering from trauma will find that they feel more anxious. They feel this need to, oh, I just got to get out of this situation. I just got to go over here. I just got to move to New York. I just got to get in a different relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, I just have to get out of here. Or they feel very frozen and stuck or they're having problems with their memory or they're experiencing sort of that phonetic panic at times. But, you know, it'll also manifest itself as physical symptoms. Yeah. So what
0: would your number one and maybe number two advice be for someone who has experienced trauma? From I mean, for you, I actually want to go back to the conversation of you losing one of your best friends by suicide. And how you have worked through that trauma. I've had my own trauma. I've done EMDR to work through that a ton of therapy, but just your advice to anyone, because I feel like no matter anyone, a lot of people don't understand, like even the small quote unquote smallest thing could be traumatizing, but Mm -hmm. we don't realize it like that is trauma and we are triggered by it. So how do we work through that trauma to overcome?
1: I think you listen Regardless of what's happening in your own personal life, if we just think about the news and the trauma of the world that we're exposed to, that in itself is secondary trauma that we're all experiencing in different ways, especially young people who are just taking in so much information. There are people that are trauma-focused, that work in the mental health field. So there are a lot of people who will say they're quote unquote trauma informed in the mental health field. But if you really feel like there's something going on, I would recommend going to see someone that really has an understanding, went to school for, because it is different than psychology or just being a medical doctor, but really understands all different types of trauma and they're trauma-focused, not trauma-informed. Let's start with that. That would be the first order of business. There are lots of different trauma modalities. You mentioned EMDR, there's somatic experiencing, there's psychodrama. there's neurofeedback. I think it's important to see someone that Has an understanding of all the different types of modalities to be able to direct you to what's going to be most appropriate for you. So for me, EMDR didn't connect. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing a lot of somatic experiencing and psychodrama. Everyone's brains are differently in the way that we process information, right? The way that we learn in school, whether you're someone that reads something and takes in all the information, or you need to watch it and see it happen to take in the information, right? So, how we take in information, how we learn, how our brain processes is really going to dictate also how we do therapy. What we do know about doing trauma work is that you can talk about it till you're blue in the face, but Talk therapy is not going to be the thing that helps release the trauma from your body. That is gonna to have to be something that's specific of trauma, that's specifically a trauma modality. Internal family systems is another model that a lot of people use that have had early childhood trauma. So there are a lot of different things out there, but you're going to need to consult with someone that really understands this world. Just like you would if you were having a heart issue, you would go see a cardiologist. Yeah.
0: Can you explain more somatic experiencing?
1: Sure. So somatic experiencing is a practice that was founded by Dr. Peter Levine 30 years ago. And essentially what Peter was studying was... Why were humans sort of holding on to this energy in our body? When you look at animals in the wild, they obviously experience traumatic experiences, right? And then they move forward, they're not carrying it with them. And what he learned was they have the ability to release that immediately you'll see a dog like shake it off, or you'll see some sort of animal do something similar. And we don't do that. It gets laid down, like I said, and not all two people can have be in the same traumatic, two people can be in the same car, have the same accident happen, witness the same things, but experience it afterwards as something completely different. So Trauma is not necessarily the event that happened, but it's how we're reliving that in the present time. It's not about what happened in the past. It's about how we're experiencing it now. So back to somatic experiencing is somatic experiencing is a modality that really helps you identify where in your body you feel that discomfort mm-hmm. and sensation. Now, not everybody can tap into their body. A lot of people are dissociated. It's not, that's why it's not, it's not for everyone. For me, 10 years into my sobriety, I was very connected with my body when I started to do the deeper trauma work. So, And I'm big on imagination and I was studying depth psychology. And so I see things in images. And so for me, it was much easier for me to be able to close my eyes and tap into where in my body, my throat, my stomach, I felt that sensation. Mm -hmm. And then SE work when you're working with a practitioner will go into that sensation and back out to a place of safety and back into that sensation and back out and slowly titrate you in and out until you're able to release that.
0: Yeah. I hold a lot in my throat. I don't get it as much Mm -hmm. anymore, but like I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are like when your throat just like tightens up. Yeah. It's a reaction. And we were talking earlier about how your body reacts and, I even under high stress, I just break out into rashes. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so interesting there. But are you happy now?
1: Yes, very. Well, let me rephrase that. Yeah. I live with a lot more joy yeah. than I ever did before. Am I happy every day? Of course not. But I don't think it's about that. I think it's about that even when I'm not happy or when something happens, I went through a really bad heartbreak a couple of years ago and it took me a very long time to be quote-unquote happy, but I knew what to do with it. I knew how to walk through that dark night. I knew how to access that pain and drive it into something that would be transforming. But yes, I'm happier than I've ever been before because I feel much more at peace and more connected to my soul. And I know how to listen to this guide that I have.
0: Yeah. And I, we all have. I asked that question too, because I meet so many people who... Or my relationship sucks. My jobs, everything sucks, 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 sucks. How do all of these people have this perfect life? And I'm like, it's not about the perfection. Perfection is a prison. I always say that. But it's learning, like, having the awareness of this is what's going on. And we are supposed to, I'm not supposed to, it just is part of life. We have this heartbreak. We have this sadness. But it's having those tools to, those healthy tools To walk ourselves through that and then also have that gratitude practice of like, I am here and I can move through this. And every heartbreak, every, just everything is just another step to make you stronger. But trying, for me, it's always looking at something that's difficult and then turning that into something that's powerful and thriving from it. And that's happiness. That's joy. I just think that's a really important thing to realize that it ain't easy.
1: No, and it's not supposed to be. It's life. Mm. And life is about the peaks and celebrating those moments of achievement and the joy that goes into our life. But it's also about the valleys that we go into and about. No one's going to get out of this life without experiencing loss Mm -hmm. or grief or heartbreak or a lot of people are suffering from diseases. There's a lot of things that are going to happen. And so it's not about not experiencing them. It's not about pushing them away and pretending. It's about understanding And maybe preparing a little bit in advance Mm -hmm. of how to not be afraid in those dark, right? Because when something happens so suddenly, a heartbreak, a divorce, a tragic loss, you're immediately pushed into, you're forced into this underground. You're forced into that dark night. And you're like, whoa, 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 I wasn't prepared. But if you can practice, and this is what I've learned to do, going into that space, when things are okay, then you learn not to be afraid of the dark. So when, God forbid, you are pushed into that, you're a little bit more prepared. It doesn't make it easier to walk through the pain. It just makes you more equipped and less afraid. So what would your top 3
0: pieces of being equipped to be in that dark night?
1: I think that you have to really, you know, I talk about in the book, my, the structure that I use for my dark night is I go into this imaginal cave and that I've decorated over time that I know what it looks like and that it's comfortable. And if you think about a dark night, it's not a bad day. A dark night is not like, oh, I'm having a hard week. A dark, that's normal. That's everyday life. It's okay to wake up and feel blue and then not even know why. That's normal for us to have emotions. But a dark night is something deeper than that. It feels like a piece of you is missing. It feels like you are fragmented. You've lost a part of yourself. You don't, people will say, I don't recognize who I am anymore. It's, and you don't know how long that is going to last. So, that's the part that people get so scared. It seems insurmountable and it seems like it's never gonna end or there's no way out. And so, you can't deal with it every second of the day because you have to show up to your ordinary life, to your relationships, to your responsibilities, Mm -hmm. to your work, to school, whatever it is. So, you need to set aside time to be able to go into that space, whether that's in a therapist's office or going to a retreat or just practicing it on your own where you're going into that space and you're allowing yourself to feel the feelings without being scared that they're going to overwhelm you and you know and really if that's unattainable for you in by yourself that's when you know you need to get some extra help and whether that's therapy or medication or whatever it is that you need there's so much help out there
0: Yeah, there is a lot of help. And I know I'm just going to give a shout out to the Big Silence Foundation. If you need help finding a therapist or perhaps can't afford it, we have our Therapy for All program through the foundation. So just email us. We'll put the info in the show notes. I just want to thank you for this. I feel like we could talk more and I want to dive into Recovery Management Agency and all of this, but... Maybe Mm -hmm. we can have another conversation. I want to read your book. And Sobriety, it's out in June, right? Or no, it came out this year. It came out in, yeah, I was going to say June, 2023. No, it came out this year in 2022. December, yeah. Yeah, we will put all of the info in the show notes of how to connect with you. And I want to reach out to you. I'm going to DM you. And we can have a conversation about our similar lives. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like. Subscribe and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love. The type of love that will defeat anxiety. The type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in to be who you already are. The Big Silence Breathe in, breathe out